I'm gonna have a glass of wine with this one. But oh, I see you're drinking. Is that a non? Is that a non-diet soda? No, it's Coke Zero. See. <laughs> I see. I just I didn't recognize it because it's a uh, it's a different kind of Coke Zero. I see that it uh, it boasts of newness on the uh, on the can there. Yeah, it just says new. I think I think it's just the packaging. The the, the, the design is new. Uh, you know, Malibu Stacy's got a new hat. <laughs> Did you ever watch the uh, the show Doug growing up? The kids cartoon. Oh sure, I never I never particularly enjoyed it, but it was on. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I, I if, if it was on between the hours of three and six o'clock, I watched it. I I don't even know if I enjoyed it either but i feel like i watched it you know tuned in each week to experience doug's uh, trials and tribulations trying to win the heart of the orange patty mayonnaise i don't remember if he ever did doug was just like the poor man's charlie brown if you ask me <laughs> he was like millennial charlie brown and you know we, we we've already got charlie so who needs it <laughs> Well, I probably haven't seen that show for 20 years, but I bet you I could still whistle the whole theme song. Anyway, the reason I brought it up is because uh, when I watched it, I don't know if this was the case for you, but it came with this tag that appeared at the end of every opening credit sequence where it said brand spankin' new Doug. And I don't think I ever saw a Doug that wasn't brand spankin' new Doug. I think it might have debuted as brand spankin' new Doug, which is a pretty audacious gesture. It's very, very much kind of, yeah, Malibu Stacy, Poochie kind of territory. Sort of like how every centrist Democrat now launches a presidential campaign. It's like they're the same as all the others, but they're brand spanking new. Now I'm trying to remember the Doug theme song. It was something kind of like that kind of sound, you know, it's funny because that's not what it was at all. But I got the spirit of it much. Well, yeah, much like the film we watched this week. I think you got to the ecstatic truth of it rather than the objective truth. It definitely had a type of whimsy that they often use things to market to children. From what I remember, the main theme was whistled and it went something like Something like that. Does that jog your memory? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that does jog my memory. Anyway, I always preferred Rugrats. I thought it was a funnier show and had a little more edge. I wasn't planning to talk about this at all. It's every single conversation I have with you on the show is like, you know, taking a bite out of the Proustian Madeline. This time it was the can (laughs) of Coke Zero. (laughs) But did you ever watch Recess? Uh, No, Recess, I feel like was maybe a little bit well, it seems to me a little bit after my time, but I guess it wasn't after yours, even though we're the exact same age. It felt like like kind of the next generation, the the immediate, like when I was eight, six-year-olds were watching it. I feel like Recess captured and reflected my very dumbest fantasies as like a six or seven-year-old boy, because the whole premise of Recess was that there was kind of this like hierarchical command structure and all these different factions on the playground they had a a king who was like elected and he wore like a little plastic hat oh he's like ozzy davis and do the right thing like (laughs) he's the mayor of the playground yeah he was the mayor of the playground and that's kind of what used to happen like every winter at my elementary school because my elementary school was out in the middle of nowhere Like, not in a city or town, just when I say I grew up rural, I mean I grew up rural in the sense that the elementary school had fields with cows in them surrounding it. Absolutely massive playground. And every winter, uh, different factions would build snow forts. And it was this competition to see, you know, who could build the best snow fort, but also, you know, who could you could you attract the most recruits to your snow fort? And you partly did this by having the best snow fort and you partly did it by having a better sales pitch, like telling people about (laughs) what the potential of the snow fort was going to be and how there was a really good place to mine, you know, blocks of snow that we were going to build the best fort in the playground with, you know, (laughs) nearby. So we had natural advantages built into this location. 
location. <laughs> Even if the other, the those kids over there, you know, 300 meters away have a snow fort that's bigger than ours as it stands. In, in the winters, I remember just getting so excited to go to school just so that like I could go to recess and, you know, partake in the snow fort wars. And then every winter, there'd be a really painful few weeks when it would start to warm up and the snow forts would start to degrade. And you'd have more and more deserters because people wouldn't want to play with the snow fort anymore. And I would always, my instinct was always to try to keep the snow fort going as long as possible. And then finally, it would just be me and a few others like Klaus Kinski at the end of Agira, the Wrath of God on the Wrath, you know, <laughs> drifting down the Amazon, just fantasizing my most grandiose dreams about how the snow fort was going to be, was still going to be better than ever. And it was going to snow again. And we were going to have a snow fort renaissance. Then you'll finally it would melt and all the walls would collapse and it would be a very sad day. Well, from these humble beginnings, we would be remiss if we did not mention on this podcast that Luke has risen the ranks to become now a published book author. Uh, Luke, your new book, The Dead Center, was announced this week from Or Books. Could you tell the people about the book and why they should pre-order it? <laughs> well, I'm not sure I'm technically a published author yet because the book is only, uh, as you said, available for pre-order. Anything can happen. Like uh, my, like Milo. Do you remember Milo had a book up for pre-order and they canceled it before it came out? That that Who knows what the next two months could bring? Yeah, I'm going to say something problematic about Mort Rifkin on this show and people are going to try to cancel me. But I believe the book will ship in March. And of course, you can get it then if you want. But if you get it now, uh, you will get 15% off what I think will be the bookstore price. And hey, if you want to help me jack my pre-order stats up, you'd be doing me a solid for that reason too. Yeah, it felt great to finally be able to announce it. I've never assembled a book before, but as you can imagine, it is a totally exhausting and simultaneously exciting and soul-crushing process. Well, this is a collection of essays you've written over the past several years. And and I'm, you know, I, folks, I pre-ordered the book because I'm thanked in the acknowledgments, but Luke told me that I would not get a free copy. Um, and hey, I want to help his algorithms. <laughs> I want to... I want to support whatever whatever the pre-sale figures that help get books on shelves accomplish. So I, of course, did that. And I'm looking forward to seeing how all of this disparate writing coalesces into a grand thesis about the past few years. Can you give me and perhaps the listeners a bit of a preview of that grand thesis? Well, I should say not everything in it has been published before. So there's a long introductory essay and there are a few unpublished essays as well, including a few that are pretty long. I found in a few cases also, I kind of had to update things. You know, that was a strange part of the process as well as revisiting earlier trains of thought and seeing how they hold up and sort of diving back inside them, which can be a very strange process. But anyway, because some of it had been written already, there was a kind of further work of curation, you know, deciding what really belonged in the book, deciding how to kind of conceptually put everything together so that it adds up to something coherent. And if I have one kind of key hope for the book, it would be that I succeeded in that. And I should say, well, you know, you are entitled to a free copy. If you want to publish a review in the New York Review of Books saying how good it is or something, <laughs> then I'll, I'll, I'll sign one for you. Well, I wouldn't want my critical judgments in any way compromised by such a conflict of interest. Uh, the The title is The Dead Center. Uh, I, I take it that uh, your thesis then is not left, not right, but forward. Yeah, that's right. I'm hoping to get Andrew Yang to blurb it. That's my marketing strategy for the book. Yeah, a little bit of electoral reform plus $1,000 a month and a new party that fuses the existing center and center right into something slightly to the right of the center. That is my grand vision. That's 
that's my second hope for the book is that I can communicate that uh, luminous political vision and make the case for it. I guess I should say, since there are lots of people that I don't co-host a podcast with that are listening, if you do work in the media and you want to review copy, uh, you can hit me up on Twitter and, uh, and I'll see what I can do. One more question about the book. I know that it includes essays on many of the notable figures, both positive and negative, to have emerged in politics over the last decade. Were there any figures who you ultimately decided were not strong enough to make the final cut? <laughs> <laughs> who has become forgotten enough to not be in the book? Yeah, so, I mean, I have written so many of these kind of deep dive, you know, critical, I don't know, polemical profiles of individual political figures. And yeah, as your question kind of answers, anticipates. Uh, there are a few who just, you know, were barely remembered at the time I was writing about them. You know, when they were present, they were barely remembered. And now, yeah, absolutely nobody uh, remembers them. So one essay that I have a soft spot for that I had to drop was my essay on John Delaney. Now, I don't know if you even remember who that is. <laughs> John Delaney was the multimillionaire Maryland congressman who, at the time I wrote the piece, which was sometime in 2019, by the time I wrote the piece, he had been running a presidential campaign for something like two years. He'd been running longer than anyone else. He'd spent a ton of money because the guy's worth like $20 million or something. He had a lot of staff. Uh, he'd had, you know, field offices in Iowa and New Hampshire, stuff like that. And, you know, his pitch was the standard, like, let's not indulge in extremism. Let's offer people sensible solutions, you know, all that kind of stuff. The other thing that was notable about him is for a balding man of middle age, he was uh, incredibly well built. So uh, not a lot I admire about this guy, but I do want to know what his routine is because it's pretty impressive. <laughs> but when I looked into that guy, you know, there were many funny things I found. One of them was that, you know, he had a YouTube channel where, you know, as a multimillionaire former congressman running for president, he got fewer views on each video. You know, some of these videos have been up for over a year. Fewer views than, you know, any middling episode of the first season of our podcast got like in 2016. <laughs> There's one of these guys who's, you know, his whole political raison d'etre, which is that, you know, most people are with me, most people are with my politics. These have mass appeal. You know, the party is, is at risk of being captured by these, you know, fringe extremists. You know, that whole raison d'etre, slightly belied by the fact that, you know, thrilling videos like John's speech at the Iowa Corn Festival uh, have, you know, 50 views or whatever. And yeah, there were a few more essays that didn't make the cut. I remember during that kind of uh, two-month window of alarmism about Michael Bloomberg when he launched his campaign, writing a piece and thinking at the time that it was going to be the first of many pieces I was going to have to write about Michael Bloomberg, because I really did think he was going to get further than he did uh, just by virtue of how much money uh, he was spending. But, you know, Michael Bloomberg's presidential campaign, I think very much like Jeb Bush's in 2016, you know, in addition to being a very strange piece of performance performance art was also a somewhat comforting illustration of uh, the limits of what money can buy in politics. I mean, Bloomberg was spending so much money. Uh, he was, you know, hiring so many staff just by paying anyone he could find money. He would bought off all of these mayors uh, throughout America with his Bloomberg training camps. You know, he he has a major media outlet named after him, et cetera, et cetera. I was worried at the time that he was going to do a lot better than he did. And because he flamed out so quickly, it did. there didn't seem to be uh, much of a case for uh, leaving that essay in. Well, from the heart of the Beltway, we now transition to Manitoba to talk about our movie on this episode, Guy Madden's 2008 film, My Winnipeg. Oh boy! 
Winnipeg. Winnipeg. Snowy, sleepwalking Winnipeg. My home for my entire life. I need to get out of here. I must leave it now. What if I film my way out of here? It's time for extreme measures. I sublet for one month the house in which I grew up. An action. Only here can I properly recreate the archetypal episodes from my family history. I hire actors to play my brothers and sister. My dog, Toby, to be played by my girlfriend's dog, Spanky. It's time to get to work. Well, we are a Canadian podcast, so I always like it when we can talk about a Canadian filmmaker. And on this episode, we've got one of the greatest. Guy Madden's work exists at the intersection of experimental and mainstream narrative film. If you haven't heard of him, you can find a lot of his films on the Criterion channel right now. Uh, He is an obsessive cinephile. He's particularly interested in films from the first half of the 20th century. And in his work, he draws a lot of influence from everything from Alfred Hitchcock to German Expressionism to Poverty Row, noir and horror films to truly arcane genres like German mountain climbing films of the 20s and 30s. One of his films, 2015's The Forbidden Room, is this kaleidoscopic series of interlocking vignettes, each of them inspired by a lost film from cinema history. If you want to get a sense of Guy Madden's style in just a few minutes, I highly recommend you go on YouTube right now and watch his film The Heart of the World, which is a kind of mock Soviet realist film. It's just a few minutes long, and it'll give you a sense of the incredible arsenal of cinema references that he brings to his work, his incredible sense of humor, his interest in silent era cinema as well, which is also something very present in the film we watched this week, and also just the incredible surrealist energy of his films. No one else makes films like this. They're so uncannily strange and hauntingly beautiful. This is important to emphasize because all of his movies are designed to look like old movies. He mostly works in black and white sometimes he even makes silent films they're all set in these dreamlike versions of the past but they're not simply pastiches they're not like the artist they have this strong dose of surrealism many of them deal in transgressive sexual content all of them are infused by his own uh, hang-ups and preoccupations And though he draws inspiration from cinema from all over the world, his work is extremely Canadian. He lives and works mostly in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is to him as New York is to Woody Allen or Rome is to Fellini. And he creates a kinship between the degraded, flickering image that you would see in an old 8mm roll of film and the punishing coldness and darkness of the Canadian North. I think he articulated this aesthetic particularly beautifully in his 2003 film, The Saddest Music in the World, which, if you're not familiar with Madden, is a good entry point to him. It stars Isabella Rossellini as a legless beer baroness in Depression-era Winnipeg, who holds a contest for musicians from around the world to compose the saddest piece of music they can. The movie we're talking about today, My Winnipeg, I think would also be a good entry point. It was originally commissioned by the Documentary Channel to be a documentary on Madden's home city. What he produced is a very complex and very funny meta-movie about his own very foggy memories of the city and his current-day relationship to the city. Much of it, perhaps even most of it, is factually inaccurate, but... 
all of it feels true on some deeper level, you know, what Werner Herzog would call the ecstatic truth. Yeah, there's a Canadian poet named Darren Wurschler who wrote a whole book about my Winnipeg. And something that he said, which I think articulates this very well, is that, quote, my Winnipeg is intriguing because it is psychologically and affectively true without being historically accurate. So this film is uh, was called by Madden himself a docu-fantasia. It's been referred to by other people as a surrealist mockumentary. As Will was saying, it combines elements of fact and fiction. It creates many episodes that didn't literally happen, and it also invokes episodes that did happen, but offers you a kind of hyper-translation of them, a kind of exaggerated, dreamlike version of them. My Winnipeg flows with the kind of random associations that are random, but nonetheless entirely legible and entirely coherent when you're seeing them. The same kind of associations that you have in a dream, where your brain is kind of inventing things, and it's calling up mental detritus in order to show you things that you haven't literally seen before, but nevertheless manage to feel familiar and kind of segue in and out of the real and the unreal in a way that feels perfectly natural, you know, as you're asleep. That's what my Winnipeg is like. And just on a more surface level, it has a very kind of dreamlike quality it's a very i find i don't know about you but i find it a very comforting film um mm-hmm. it has this device throughout it of an actor playing madden sitting on a train trying to leave the city and it feels like the train is going in circles or something which is very similar to the kind of thing that would happen in a dream and because one of the other big themes of the movie is just how incredibly cold winnipeg is it's the coldest city in the world or at least it identifies as such my own brother lived there for two years and uh, can confirm that it's certainly very very cold but because of that i always find watching this movie this is maybe the the sixth or seventh time i've seen it i don't know i always find it akin to when you're sleeping under a warm blanket in a cold room next to a window and there's you know a torrential downpour outside or there's a blizzard or something like that it's just a just a warm glass of milk this film I wanted to talk about this movie, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is that I've had a lot of cause lately to think about memory and the way memory plays tricks on us. I've lost a couple of family members recently, and I've had a lot of cause to think about what is left behind and to what extent what is left behind is true and and how much your brain shapes it. And in addition to that, you know, I remember when I first saw this movie in 2008, I was 19 years old. And of course, I liked it a lot. You know, what's not to like? But it's definitely one of those movies that I think benefits from the additional 14 years of life experience. It it benefits from living just long enough to see so many of the places, so many of the people, so many of the spaces that you've you've known and loved your whole life be steamrolled by progress. And to have ambivalent feelings about those developments. I'll describe just a little bit the framing device of the film. Madden himself narrates the film. It opens with him reflecting on his own inability to leave Winnipeg. Winnipeg is kind of like Joyce's Ireland in this movie. It's this place where everybody's in a rut and nobody can quite leave it. Madden himself, I'm sure, if he if he wanted to in real life, could leave Winnipeg, as I'm sure he does, you know, on for business and pleasure on many occasions. But Winnipeg, too, is a metaphor for our past. And in this case, one of the things that Madden is, or at least in the film, is trying to escape is the memory and the legacy of his overbearing mother. And as a way out, he decides to make a film 
a film within the film about his childhood, hiring actors to play himself and his family. It's worth noting, by the way, that Madden's mother is played by an actress named Anne Savage, no relation to my co-host, who was the star of one of the greatest and cheapest film noirs of the 1940s, a film called Detour from 1945, which everyone should watch. It's easy to find. It's 68 minutes long. There's a nice restored version on the Criterion channel. And she's someone who is in a number of movies, all of them B-movies, had one really great performance in Detour, and then was forgotten for decades, basically, until Detour acquired a cult following. And in this movie, um, you know, she was in her 80s when she made My Winnipeg, clearly quite visibly past the point of really being able to act. You know, we see a number of uh, outtakes uh, and a number of alternate line readings of her. And yet, nevertheless, she does bring, whether by her physical presence or whether by the ghosts of Hollywood history that she brings with her, this this extraordinary quality to the film, the kind of quality Madden cinema thrives on. We should add that there's a further device Madden uses in relation to this character, which is I, I bring up only because it's an example of how many different layers this film has but he specifically says in the narration that he casting all these people to play his family uh, but he's decided to leave the role of his mother to his actual mother well of course Anne Savage is not his actual mother yeah <laughs> the narrative has a kind of circular structure he keeps going back and forth between his memories of the city between myths and lore about the city and incidents from his own childhood oftentimes traumatic incidents from his childhood related to his mother typically of the film is an early scene where he talks about how the family would always watch a TV show called Ledge Man. Ledge Man was this daily soap opera that allegedly played in Winnipeg for 50 years that his mother starred in, unbeknownst to herself. In every episode, there was a man on a ledge and his mother sticking her head out the door saying various unhelpful things to him. Clearly, the man on the ledge is Guy Madden. Clearly, the Ledge Man TV show is some psychodrama happening in Guy Madden's head that's been going on for 50 years. Yeah, and also possibly just something that he's created out of fragments of TV shows that he doesn't really remember. You know, he doesn't remember them exactly, but he remembers the kind of aura, you know, Ledge Man feels like a kind of hyper-real version of the kind of drab family sitcoms that people would have seen in the 1950s, just sort of melodramatic, badly acted, incredibly repetitive, you know, the same conceits appearing week after week, and, you know, people couldn't take their eyes off them every week nonetheless. It feels like something like that. As well, I think every market, every local market has its own TV industry. It has its own public access station where you see these shows. Maybe you're haunted by memories of shows that you saw when you were growing up. They're just kind of like, did, did that really exist? Did I really see that show? You know, you go online and you're trying to find evidence that like, did other people see that? Or did I hallucinate that show from when I was a kid? Did did other people see PJ Katie's farm? Or was that just me? <laughs> well, I told you about that talk show that was on, I think it broadcast out of, I don't remember if it was Kitchener Waterloo or, you know, it was somewhere, it was some minor metropolis near the very rural county where I lived. And it was, you know, on some like local station. And it was like a guy who talked about the issues of the day. 
you know, he would he would talk about news stories and then people would call in. And because it was on TV, it was a lot more entertaining to experience than a radio call in show because you could see his facial expressions and you could see how uncomfortable he was getting with some of the questions. And very quickly, you know, my friends and I used to sometimes call in and wind him up, which was incredibly <laughs> which was incredibly satisfying. I was gonna say I'm not proud of this, but it's we're far enough removed from it in time that I think I could say I definitely am proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't be too mean to him, but what was so great is after a few weeks, we discovered that there were other people who had, who knew about him as well. And so, you know, I think we only called in twice. And I should say it was nothing too mean. It was all pretty PG. This was less true of some of the other people that called in. And after a while, we would just tune in to see what to see what happened, because on every single episode, there would be at least one incident. <laughs> and there was clearly somebody just off camera sitting there with their finger over like a big red button that would just like cut off the phone immediately. He used to have to cut to ad break really, really abruptly when something had gone wrong. Anyway, I wonder what happened to that guy. It was, it was such a strange show. Like you were saying, I kind of wonder if I dreamed it. Anyway, sorry to digress. I just had to talk about that one more time. A number of historical incidents are recounted. Some of them are true, like Madden aligns himself with Canada's social democratic history with a segment on the 1919 Winnipeg general strike. Uh, he recounts the history of that, talking about how the press was very much against the workers who went on strike, but really positioning this as a, as a proud moment, part of a long gone, unmemorialized past in Winnipeg. Then there are also moments that I suspect are, are not true, like when he talks about the racetrack that led horses into the Red River and caused the horses to disappear into the river, but then every winter their frozen heads appear just above the surface, <laughs> which to me feels kind of like the sorts of urban legends that you talk about your town when you're a little kid on the schoolyard. You know, you talk about, oh, just over that field, that's where, you know, whatever, whatever happened. And it, like you create an alternate history of the place from these schoolyard rumors that's right and if the place itself is formative for you you know the rumors become part of your own self mythology and so there's a sense in which they take on a kind of truth unto themselves i will say though that i did dive pretty deep into this movie after this viewing and i did look into a few of these incidents and from what I can tell, in most cases, Madden is recounting something that at least is rooted in something true. They're not entirely fabricated. So, for example, there's a story in my, in my Winnipeg about a bridge, the Arlington Street Bridge, and how it was originally built to go over some part of the Nile. Now, apparently, this has been a piece of local folklore for decades. Um, and I looked into it a bit, and there's actually a, a city alderman quoted in the July 30th, 1946 edition of the Winnipeg Free Press, an alderman by the name of Bloomberg, who sat on the city council's bridge committee. And he's quoted as saying, the Arlington Street Bridge will always be a bugbear. It was built to go across the Nile River, but it was peddled off to the city of Winnipeg. The sooner the bridge comes down and a modern one goes up, the sooner will the city maintain expenses. There's a later uh, a headline, uh, is the city interested in new Nile Bridge? In 1952, January of 1952, there was a reporter in the Winnipeg Free Press who made a reference that seemed to be alluding to something about the Nile. He or she wrote, but for a whim of fate, the old Arlington Bridge, instead of being covered with snow and ice, would have had crocodiles playfully nipping at its piers. Anyway, there's a blog called the West End Dumplings, uh, which is a local Winnipeg history blog, which uh, dives into this myth a little bit. And uh, from what the blogger can tell... The Nile connection never actually appears in official city documents. 
And even though it does make appearances in these news stories, you know, it's not really clear if that alder, you know, that alderman could just have been riffing and, you know, the reference to the Nile could have been rhetorical. Although uh, in conclusion, this blogger, and forgive me, I couldn't find out their name, writes, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that points to the possibility that this bridge structure may be tied to the work that Cleveland Bridge was doing in Sudan around the same time that the tender was called. So it's possible that there was some kind of a connection. Something else that comes up in the film, uh, which I didn't know about at all, was the fact that Arthur Conan Doyle uh, visited Winnipeg. There's a whole article about this on the website of the Manitoba Historical Society, and uh, Conan Doyle is quoted as saying, I came away with the conclusion that Winnipeg stands very high among the places we have visited for its psychic possibilities. Now, Madden quotes this directly in the film, and true to form, I think he's kind of taking it out of context. It seems like Doyle was speaking in a more kind of literal religious sense, where whereas Madden is using it instead to describe the kind of tapestry of possibilities, uh, you know, psychic possibilities that the city of Winnipeg represents for him. Nonetheless, a very, uh, a very evocative comment. Another one of the incidents that appears in the film and is just slightly torqued, but is nevertheless true, is the Nazi invasion of Winnipeg. We see what Madden puts together as documentary footage showing the Nazi occupation of Winnipeg. And, you know, he's kind of, his narration is kind of recounting the story, you know, by midday, they changed the name of Main Street to, you know, Hitler Strauss or, or something like that. <laughs> you know, they locked up the teachers and, and, the, uh, and the city officials in the local library, you know, something like that. Now, of course, the Nazis never invaded Winnipeg, but Madden makes a reference to something called If Day. Now, If Day is a real day in Winnipeg history. It occurred on February 19th, 1942, and it was in fact a staged event, uh, which was put on by the Canadian government to raise money. This was the federal government for the war effort. I want to read a bit from the Manitoba Historical Society here, because I think this is just such an incredible little episode. During World War II, Canadians were very supportive of the Allied cause, but for many, it was something happening over there. It was not something direct affecting them. After all, there hadn't been a war in North America for years. If Day was designed to change this attitude and give North Americans, most North American newspapers covered the event, and Manitobans in particular, a very personal sample of the Nazi war machine. It was coordinated with the Victory Loan Campaign a campaign, the second, of the federal government to raise $600 million in victory bonds to fund the war effort. Advertisements for the bonds often carry descriptions of soldiers' dedication to freedom and democracy, asking if the reader could not at least buy a bond. The idea was to stage a fake Nazi invasion of Manitoba. The Nazis were to occupy and administer the province for the rest of the day. The key was realism. One couldn't ignore these Nazis any more than the real ones. Nazi aircraft came in from the north, first sighted at Norway House. Selkirk was the first to fall prey, but by no means the last. The Nazi war machine was converging on Winnipeg. At 6 a.m., the sirens sounded and troops were stationed along a line five miles from City Hall. By 7 o'clock, the Nazis arrived at the first line of defense. It was an incredibly realistic invasion, yet aside from a soldier who sprained his ankle and a Miss Gorin who cut her thumb in her blacked-out apartment, there were no casualties. All of the shells and ammunition were blanks. The bridges were strewn with rubble and declared blown up. The government of the city was taken over by the Nazis. Mayor John McQueen, Premier Bracken, Lieutenant Governor McWilliams, the Norwegian minister of the U.S. who was visiting McWilliams at the time, several aldermen, and the city clerk were all arrested and imprisoned in Lower Fort Garry, the Nazi internment center. The Union Jack over the fort was, of course, replaced with the swastika. One alderman, Colonel Dan McLean, managed to escape by hiding in an empty room. Meanwhile, the other stormtroopers scoured police headquarters for Chief George Smith. Proclamations and commands were plastered all over telephone poles announcing Nazi supremacy and new civil rules such as the following. It is hereby proclaimed that this territory is now part of the Greater Reich and under the jurisdiction of Colonel Erich von Nuremberg, Gauleiter of the Fuhrer. 
Every householder must provide billeting for five soldiers. All owners of motor cars, trucks, and buses must register same at occupation headquarters where they will be taken over by the Army of Occupation. It goes on and on like this. There's in this article, which you can find at the Manitoba Historical Society, a very lush and detailed description of this incredibly strange uh, simulated Nazi invasion of Winnipeg, which Madden recreates in the film. So that's just another example of an incident that Madden recounts. Uh, and, you know, his version of it is slightly different. In his version, the Nazis are all revealed to be actors, but no one in the town is in on it. So in his recreation, the people of Winnipeg think they're actually being occupied that by the Nazis. And then all of the Nazis later reveal themselves at the end of the day to have just been extras in this federal government plan. Did you look into to see if there was any validity to the section where he says that all the streets were named after the sex workers at the mighty local brothel? I'm not up on my Winnipeg street names, unfortunately, but there is one other kind of minor story which I looked up uh, that's incredible, which is the story of the Wolseley Street Elm. Now, in the film, there's this brief segment where there is an elm on the eponymous Wolseley Street, which the city wants to demolish, and a coalition of local women, it seems, basically chain themselves to the tree and refuse to allow them to tear it down. But then later that weekend, Madden says, vandals, uh, clearly in the pay of the city, came and blew it up with dynamite. Now, it turns out that much of this story is true, everything except for the dynamite. The tree, of course, was not blown up with dynamite, although from what I can tell, it was demolished something like a decade or a little after a decade by the city after this incident occurred. So I think in this case, we can assume that Madden includes this stylized version of the story as a kind of satirical protest against the fact that the city eventually did indeed demolish the Wolseley Street Elm. In Winnipeg, it's way more fun for us to cross the city using only its back lanes. The city possesses a vast network of these unofficial streets, a fine grid-like work of narrow, unspoken-of byways that hold a charm all of their own. They're not even allowed on city maps, but the populace knows all about them and uses them more than legitimate streets. A dispute between the city's two main taxi companies was settled by giving one company the rights to use the regular streets, while the other company must pick up and drop off its fares only in the back lanes. It's inside these black arteries where the real Winnipeg is found, where memories most plausibly come alive. One of my favorite sections of the movie concerns the demolition of the Winnipeg Arena. Oh. Uh, I'll read a little bit from his monologue in this scene. He says, A horrific chain reaction of architectural tragedies started in the late 90s when our titanic Eaton's department store on Portage Avenue hit that prairie iceberg and sank. Bankruptcy. Eaton's once dominated the city to the point where 65 cents of every Winnipeg shopping dollar was spent at this single store. To say it defined Winnipeg retail would be no exaggeration. After the bankruptcy, our civic government, without even trying to dream up an inventive second life for the old store, suddenly and unforgivably raised it. Demolition is one of our city's few growth industries. Overnight, construction of a new arena on the old Eaton site was announced. Curiously, after years of fighting, resisting, refusing to build a new rink for the NHL Jets, allowing them to abandon us for Phoenix, City Council suddenly rushed out this new architectural lie to Winnipeggers. The result? A sterile thrift rink for minor league hockey with too few seats to reach the NHL minimum should a miracle ever give us another shot at playing in the big leagues. 
This is the one section of the movie that Madden films in affectless color digital video. You know, just normal digital video. He shows us this uh, monstrous arena in the middle of town that's replaced the Eden's department store. And he goes on then to say that because there were now two arenas, two hockey arenas in Winnipeg, the other one had to be demolished. The older one that had fallen into disuse, even though the older one was a place, he describes it as the most fabled myth and memory packed landmark in our city's history. That rink has been demolished. I love this section for a few reasons. I love that it's he's mourning the Eaton's department store, you know, just <laughs> this commercial enterprise, which on the face of it, I think even he would admit, like, it's not the burning of the Library of Alexandra we're talking about. It's an Eaton's department store. But it was once very central to the life of many Winnipeggers. He has a statistic, which I can only assume is true, that at one point, some ludicrous percentage of every dollar spent, you know, every shopping dollar spent in Winnipeg was spent in this one store. It might, I think it was more than half. I'm forgetting the exact mm-hmm. statistic. Yeah. And so what do you what do you do with something like that? Yes, it's a commercial enterprise. Yes, Eaton's has gone out of business. I guess on some level, you can't memorialize every store. But yes, it is a landmark. It's a site of historic importance. It's a site where memories accumulated. Uh, what What do you do with that? Well, I guess you could say he's he's not really memorializing the store as, you know, the kind of corporate and commercial entity it was. He's memorializing a space that was once very significant to him. I mean, I think about it in my own life how there was a Woolco, I think that was the name of the store, on the outskirts of Woodstock, Ontario. I believe it was was in one of the saddest strip malls you've ever seen. I think it's a little less sad these days since they opened the auto plant in Woodstock 10 or 15 years ago. But the Woolco, which I think was was later replaced with a Walmart, which I also visited a lot. I mean, all of my memories of that mall, whether it was the Woolco or the Walmart, which, you know, of course, are very fragmentary. I was very young. You know, I was, you know, five or six years old when I was uh, visiting this place. All my memories are of a very kind of dingy space. I remember the uh, Walmart when it was put in had a McDonald's in it, which as a six-year-old or whatever, I thought was incredible. I was like, how can you have one store inside another? You can get French <laughs> fries. The exact same feeling. <laughs> yes, I you know, get, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> you can get French fries while enjoying Walmart's low, low prices. Incredible. <laughs> Anyway, I have scarcely any memories of that mall. Uh, you know, I have one very fleeting memory of going into whatever the sad bookstore in the mall was. Maybe it was a Kohl's or something like that. I think it was a chain bookstore. And as a very proud six-year-old, I told the proprietor that I read big grown-up chapter books. And then I got very angry when the part of the store she sent me to was all of this young adult fiction. And I remember just thinking, maybe I wasn't six, maybe I was like eight. But I remember just thinking, what do you take me for? Give me Tropic of Cancer. Get me the 120 Days of Sodom. Give me some real grown-up chapter books. Ulysses, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Anyway, just to put a bow on that, it's not like I have any fond memory of that strip mall, you know, as a strip mall. It's just that it was the site of formative experiences. And my memory of it is just this kind of patchwork of fragmentary images and and feelings and things like that. So I guess you could say, just like the Eaton store in my Winnipeg, 
I'm sad that that space no longer exists for me. And if I was to revisit the exact physical location, I'm sure it would be unrecognizable. Yeah, I mean, it's true that memories live on through objects. Memories live on through architecture. And you feel you feel a uh, continuum with your past self by visiting familiar sites. Not long ago, I stepped into Richview Library in Etobicoke, which was my library growing up. I spent so much time in that library, and I hadn't been since 2007, I want to say. Uh, but I was in there just because I happened to be in the neighborhood. And when I went in, it, it had been completely renovated. It didn't look even remotely like the library that I grew up with. And I just felt, I mean, you know, that's fine. <laughs> obviously, obviously, they have to renovate. It would look pretty shit if it looked like it did when I was a kid. But they spent money on a public building, like <laughs> yeah. evil, pure evil. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say, though, that it ruined my day and made me very sad. Um, but anyway, beyond that, I think this section of the movie resonates with me so strongly because you and I have spent our adult lives seeing beloved spaces, beloved institutions steamrolled in the name of progress. And whenever it happens, there is always great societal pressure to tell us to not be upset about it because, hey, that's the market. That's the way it goes. And, you know, maybe in some cases there is truth to what society is saying. Maybe there are outmoded spaces. Maybe there are outmoded businesses. But on the one hand, I want to be able to be upset about it. I want to be able to be sad about it. And secondly, it's not simply uh, the invisible hand of the market. It's not simply inexplicable forces, you know, like the weather. These are political decisions that are made. And that is not often enough acknowledged. Yeah, and actually, that's one of the things I really like about this section of my Winnipeg, because you can tell Madden, you know, as someone who clearly appreciates hockey, nonetheless feels a lot of resentment towards the NHL. You know, he has some wonderful line about how, you know, this hard scrabble working class city was priced out of the NHL or something. Of course, the Winnipeg Jets did eventually come back a few years ago. So Winnipeg has an NHL team again. But Madden expresses just a tremendous amount of pride that feels very authentic in the city's hockey and kind of broader athletic history. He says in the film that his sister is a member of the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame, which it's something he says, and again, I can only assume this is true, uh, you know, is, a, is an actual museum that is constantly moved around. It's a very transitory place. And every time it moves to a new building, the building is always demolished, which I think is a very uh, pregnant metaphor. But, you know, uh, as we as we were kind of saying already, childhood and kind of memories of childhood are something that runs very strongly throughout this film. This is clear right from the outset when Madden talks about the rivers running through Winnipeg and he has this kind of mantra he repeats over and over again, the forks, the lap, the forks, the lap. And the image alternates between an image of his mother's naked lap and then the forks in the river and the water flowing, which again, visually is a very potent kind of metaphor. But to turn back to the hockey section, even though it's quite absurdist and over the top. And, you know, his narration is self-aware about its own absurdism. I found this section incredibly moving. I forgot how moving I find this part of the movie. Mm -hmm. He has a wonderful story about a Soviet team coming to play. Either it's the Jets or one of the Winnipeg hockey teams. I can't remember one of their historic teams. And this whole section is very homoerotic, actually, because he talks about the players and their bodies, you know, covered in steam and, you know, these big muscular guys. And he has this story, which, you know, probably not true, about sneaking into the locker room of the Soviet team and stealing the jersey of his favorite Russian player. And then he talks about taking it home. And there's something that's filmed like you're seeing it play from an aged bit of celluloid from the old family album where he's wearing the jersey as a child. And he talks about taking erotically charged scenes 
secret slap shots. And I love this segment for so many reasons, but one of them actually is that it kind of reminds me of one of my favorite of your stories, which was the story about your mom uh, making you the Batman costume as a child and the costume being so intimidating to you because of what it represented that you had to, you, you couldn't put it on all at once. Parents told you, uh, well, why don't you just try putting on like the, the cape first and wearing that for a few days and then and then later you can work your way up to the other things you know madden talks about wearing this player's jersey covered in his sweat and finding it to be almost a sacred object that was you know totally overwhelming to actually touch which you know i can't offhand think of something that's analogous to that for me but it's certainly a train of thought that seems very easy to associate with childhood i'm sure if i thought hard enough uh, i have my own version of that something that really resonated with me on this viewing is the tone of ambivalence that runs throughout and how darkness and light in his memories are weaved together we're often seeing these amusing or righteous or whatever they are memories of winnipeg as a town and as an idea are constantly going back and forth between these personal memories of his mother and his family as i've been thinking about memory a lot lately this is to me the way that memory actually works like memory is not this treasure chest that you can dive into and get what you want and it's all perfectly located there and it's not segregated necessarily into good and bad memories it's not a linear continuum of events either it's much more jumbled than that absolutely and i mean you know memories live on uh, as i said earlier through objects and spaces and places they get triggered without you expecting them to memory can frankly be an unpleasant or a painful thing and it can go from something happy right into something painful um, without you anticipating it and I think that's something this movie really captures, you know? Memory is tricky terrain. Memory is not always pleasant. It's this big soup. It, it, memory is is the subconscious. Yeah, and that's why in this segment on the uh, demolition of the arena, which, you know, is, is particularly abs- absurdist in the way that Madden renders it, I think nevertheless achieves a potency that's really incredible. He creates this incredible story where he asks, what if the arena hadn't been demolished when it was, and all of the old players who are now in their 80s form a team called the Black Tuesdays, and they just keep playing on the rink, and then as they're playing on the rink, it starts to be demolished. So you see this kind of like old-timer hockey game happening with all these veterans of Winnipeg hockey as, you know, the wrecking ball is smashing down the arena. And then later you see the actual footage of the arena being destroyed by dynamite. And I don't think that Madden uh, superimposed the audio uh, onto this. I think it's real, but you can hear people chanting, go Jets, go, as the arena that the Jets played in is demolished. And then incredibly, the dynamite only seems to destroy the new, the newer part of the arena. So the older structure is still left standing, which in Madden's narration, he says uh, he interpreted as a sign. And I don't know, maybe it's because I grew up, you know, surrounded by hockey and I played minor hockey. Hockey was a hugely important part of community life where I grew up. I just find this whole sequence unbelievably powerful. Mother, I had an accident. I ran into a deer. What were you doing out there? A track team party. Where did it happen? In the back seat. Mother, what happened? The real party. My mother. As perennial as the winter, as ancient as the bison, a magnetic pole, a direction from which I can't turn for long. An action. You have to feed us. My cooking days are over. We brought the parakeet with us. I'll call him off if you get up and make us some meatloaf. Right Right now. now. Once this filmed reenactment is complete, I can free myself from the heinous power of family and city and escape once and for all. 
anyway, I think to put the film to bed, and it really is a, a wonderful and special film. And if you haven't seen it, uh, whether you're a Canadian listener or not, and you know, a majority of our listeners are not Canadian, whether you're listening in the United States or in Britain or in Ireland or in Germany or somewhere else, I think there will be things in this film that you can strongly identify with, even if what it's showing you is in some ways very distant from your own experience. I mean, if you're listening from the United States and you grew up in a former industrial town in the Midwest, much of it, I suspect, will gel pretty directly with your own experience, you know, the experience of the town you grew up in. But to put the film to bed, I, I do think we should situate it uh, specifically as a Canadian film. I think it's important to do this because on this podcast, we've complained before a lot about, you know, Canadian kitsch and the ways in which official Canadian culture either fails to represent Canada in a way that feels serious or authentic and or uh, is in some ways merely a projection of what Canada at kind of idiomatically and symbolically means to people in other countries often specifically the United States, because, of course, the influence of the United States, cultural, economic, political, is so overbearing in Canada that often the country's own cultural imaginary is not robust enough to kind of overpower it and be autonomous from it. I mean, the example I like to bring up over and over again, which is something I've uh, I've complained about to no end, is that, you know, when Justin Trudeau became Prime Minister of Canada in 2015, you know, he was obviously a huge hit abroad, a huge hit in the United States where he was, you know, famously featured on the cover of Rolling Stone, that kind of thing. And for years, what we had was the Canadian media reporting on our own government, on our own prime minister through the lens, you know, reporting on the foreign reporting, such that the picture of their own prime minister that Canadians were getting was effectively one created abroad. You know, Canadians were getting an idealized projection <laughs> of their own country from abroad. This, of course, didn't, you know, begin with Justin Trudeau. It's in many ways a, a feature of Canada, which is just a very strange kind of nation state. I'm, I mean, people don't pay attention to Canada because it's, uh, you know, it's so small and because they see it as an appendage of the United States or whatever. But it is a unique kind of place. I'm not aware of any other country that has the strange hybridized political culture uh, that Canada has that was created by one set of European colonies, partly but not fully conquering another. I mean, the much mythologized experience of multiculturalism in Canada, which is much mythologized in some ways for the worse, which is something I've uh, been very critical of in some ways, uh, but which is also nevertheless true. I mean, it should be said that Winnipeg, you know, and this comes through in the film, uh, was and is a very multicultural place. Uh, I didn't have time to look up this particular statistic, but I had a professor of mine who came from Winnipeg, who I believe said that at one point Winnipeg had, I think it was several dozen, I don't think I'm exaggerating, several dozen newspapers in Icelandic. You know, the Winnipeg general strike, which of course comes up in the film and, and is one of the most formative events in Canadian labor history, involved workers who spoke many different languages, you know, Ukrainians, Poles, some of the leaders like J.S. Woodsworth, who later went on to found the Socialist Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, hailed from British descent. Of course, there were Icelanders as well and many, many others. So Winnipeg, like Canada, was and is a, an incredible cultural pastiche, an incredible cultural mosaic. Anyway, I could go on and on about what makes Canada different and the strange and unusual country that it is. But I think the other thing that's really important to know is that in the 1960s, Canadian elites of all kinds, political elites, uh, you know, in and around the Pierre Trudeau administration and uh, the preceding administration under Lester Pearson, cultural elites as well, you know, artists, storytellers, um, people of all kinds, 
initiated a very conscious project of, of nation building, a project which was deliberately setting out to create a new story for what this country was and what it represented beyond the standing one that it was kind of a proxy of the British Empire. Now, again, there's much to be said about this, and it's, it's not something I'm saying to idealize, it's just a historical fact. And it's an important fact to keep in mind anytime you're thinking about Canadian culture, because one of the things that frequently and incessantly dogs Canadian culture is the fact of its kind of newness. The fact that there were in some ways these top-down ideas, these, these top-down myths about what the country was, which were related to the real thing, but were nevertheless top-down myths. There's this particular story of Canada that's, you know, replicated and has been told over and over again, has been reproduced over and over again in all kinds of radio shows, TV dramas that not very many people watch, culture of all sorts. And of course, you know, saying this, I'm not trying to say that Canada hasn't produced a lot of really wonderful art and that there aren't many great Canadian artists, but I think it's fair comment to say that some of official Canadian culture has suffered from trying to conform to some sort of prefigured idea, you know, some sort of prefigured narrative of what the country is. And as a result, there's there can be a, a kind of homogeneity about it that's very unconvincing. Now, this very long and tedious setup is all to say that Guy Madden's film, My Winnipeg, I think successfully breaks from all of these tendencies I'm so critical of and does so wonderfully. It's a film which, as we said earlier, gets to the ecstatic truth of Winnipeg. You know, it doesn't try to layer on some prefigured idea of what, you know, Winnipeg is supposed to be. You know, it blends historical reality and, you know, autobiographical truth. And for that reason, I think it's a more effective and authentic kind of mythologization and kind of mythologization of place than what has been the norm in Canada. I found a really interesting interview with Madden. So Madden is speaking in this interview with the film critic Scott Tobias. And, you know, he's being asked variously about the fact that the film is sort of a jumble of fact and fiction. And, you know, he's mashing up his own autobiography with historical truth. He's exaggerating things. He's inventing memories for himself and that kind of thing. And I really like Madden's answer here because it gives you a sense of how intentional everything in the film is and why, for that reason, it's able to achieve a kind of ecstatic truth. Madden says, I never had any qualms about jumbling up Winnipeg in a dream blender. I myself can't even remember the source of half of the stuff. It's been a while. I do know one thing. It seems like the most popular medium for disbanding truth for the last hundred years has been celluloid or film. It reaches the most people. People watch movies and read books. And I just thought that Winnipeg had been one of the least mythologized cities in the world of a comparable size. There are all sorts of geopolitical reasons for that. One is that Canada is one of the least mythologized countries in the world because it's just a diluted version of America sitting atop it. So there's nothing really to talk about for most people, especially for Canadians who feel unworthy talking about it. I remember making it as my very simple mission statement that I would give Winnipeg the all-American, uninhibited mythologization treatment, and that I'd have a clear conscience doing so because I knew ecstatic truth was just as true as any other true documentary can muster. So I'm very struck by this comment he makes here about giving Winnipeg the all-American, uninhibited mythologization treatment. Now, Madden also says that Canada is one of the least mythologized countries in the world. And obviously that sounds a little bit contradictory to what I just said. But I don't think it's necessarily incompatible because, of course, he goes on to say it's just a diluted version of America sitting atop it. So there's nothing really t to talk about for most people, especially for Canadians who feel unworthy talking about it. You know, I'm not any kind of nationalist myself, but I do think that's another problem which daunts Canadian cultural expression, or at least sometimes daunts it. 
Canada is so suffused with, you know, TV and films and news and things like that from the United States that at times anyway, there's a very profound lack of confidence of kind of small C confidence that people have in their country and its culture, which I think is not the norm in most countries throughout the world and or in many societies throughout the world, obviously generalizing a lot here. So to come back to Madden's statement here, when he says he wants to give Winnipeg the all-American uninhibited mythologization treatment, I take that to mean that he didn't want the film to conform to some kind of prefigured idea of Winnipeg. You know, he gets the ecstatic truth with this kind of unapologetically hyper-real take on the city that draws on its actual experience, but also his own autobiography. I feel like this is potentially a formula for representing Canada and the Canadian cultural experience, or rather the multi multiplicity of Canadian cultural experiences that would be much more potent and authentic than what we sometimes see on TV or hear on the radio. One of the many reasons why Guy Madden is my favorite Canadian filmmaker and why my Winnipeg is, is probably in my top five or even top three of Canadian cultural artifacts. I'm sure we could end it on that note, but what you said had me thinking about why so much of Canadian art and so much of Canadian cinema is bad. And one of the problems with Canada is we don't have really have the population to support uh, a culture industry of our own. Well, it's like the world we're I mean, we're the world's second largest uh, national landmass and we have, you know, something like 40 million people. And so as a result, you know, most of our culture industry is funded uh, either by the government or by uh, the boards of directors of various banks uh, who, who have invested their money into it as a tax write-off or something like that. And th this system has produced a, a substantial amount of great art over the years uh, in cinema. It's certainly given us a lot of Adam McGoyan and a lot of David Cronenberg and a lot of Guy Madden as well. Something it's also done, though, is create a lot of movies that are sort of like consciously striving to sort of fill out a certain number of checkmark boxes in the Canadian national identity and project a positive image of Canada. You know, what you were saying, almost like nation building on screen. You know, one of the quintessential Canadian filmmakers is is Paul Gross. Uh, you're, you're familiar with Paul Gross. He's the director of the mega budget $20 million war movie Passchendaele, which is all about Canada's great sacrifice sacrifice in the first world war he also i think is the last film he directed was hyena road which is about canada's participation in the afghanistan war am i wrong in thinking he also appeared in the movie men with brooms yes that was a paul gross starring vehicle so men with brooms was a film that will and i once spent an extremely humiliating afternoon going around to various video stores mostly in the now demolished mervish village <laughs> which in keeping with uh, some of the themes in my winnipeg was demolished to build luxury condos which are which are still being built but i have several fond memories from that day of will walking up to the staff at various video stores and saying while blushing his way through some version of the question do you have men with brooms <laughs> usually the answer was no and i think in the end we had to buy the movie or something in order to watch it well you know passiondale is the quintessential <laughs> paul gross movie because it's this canadian war movie that tries to be the war movie for all canadians you know, if, if you think war is hell, well, it's got a bit of that for you. If you think war is glorious and helped define the nation and, and our sacrifice in World War One made us a country distinct from Britain, well, then it'll it'll tell you that, too. You know, just a totally useless object that won't make anyone happy and nobody enjoy. It's it was made 20 million dollars of various banks and government funding bodies 
created this thing that is being shown in grade 10 history class right now and nowhere else. I brought it up before, but I have to bring it up again here. I mean, Canada is the kind of country to have produced a TV movie about the First World War that cast a novelty part for Justin Trudeau. This was before he entered politics and wrote in a line for him where he's writing in his diary to his you know, wife back home or something. And the line is something like, the Sergeant Major is impressed with me. He says that I will be prime minister one day. Well, Passchendaele is a movie that uh, the thesis of it and the reason for it being is Canada is a great country. Therefore, we deserve a war movie like like great countries have. That's that's why it exists. Hyena Road is the same. It's like and, it's like, it's like Mark Wahlberg making that movie about the Boston Marathon bombing out of some kind of like insecurity that bought like it's like we deserve our own 9-11. Damn it. Yeah. Except imagine instead instead of Mark Wahlberg, it's Telefilm Canada and the president of CIBC or whatever. But a funny thing about Hyena Road is Paul Gross actually invited Guy Madden to make a film on the set of Hyena Road. And that film showed at the same Toronto International Film Festival where Hyena Road debuted in, I think, 2015, I want to say. It's uh, 20 or 25 minutes. I hope it's online somewhere. And essentially, Guy Madden kind of skewered the movie. He he made fun of it as an example of this sort of like misplaced uh, Canadian exceptionalism. Uh, He made this very funny essay film about him on the set of this super production. And the title of it is... Bring me the head of Tim Horton. After a lifetime of many botched attempts, this time I'm leaving for good. Again. 